Turn with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7. Found it right next to the Psalms and uh, pretty close to the center of your Bible. And as such, just like all of the Word of God, Jesus warned us not to live by bread alone, not to live for simply the, the food that perishes, but to draw life, to live by the Word of God, to live upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, including this passage. Reading in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Please join me in prayer. Our God and Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word, inerrant, unfailing, true in every way, Father, it has been breathed out by you, Lord, so that we would draw life through faith in Christ and through obedience to your word. Lord, help us to hear this word exactly where we are, exactly where we need it. And Lord, help us to receive it and trusting in our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to grow wise with regard to salvation. Lord, thank you that your word has been given to us so that we might find our hope completed in trusting you and walking with you, knowing you, and living with you eternally. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we, we often think of fear as something that hinders us, that keeps us from performing, that holds us back from being all that we can be. And it, it's true that ungodly fears can, can paralyze us, they can restrict us, they can cause us to run in the opposite direction, to hide rather than to move forward. And I, I think of my experience as a, as a young man. I, uh, even though you see me standing up in front of you talking to everybody, uh, I was quite fearful of standing in front of people, let alone even talking to people as a young person. My fear was so great that I would not even ask a waitress for ketchup for my french fries. And I thought I loved ketchup on my french fries. But what I realized that my love of french fries with ketchup was not greater than my fear of speaking up, my fear of speaking out. And so that, that hindered me. Uh, in many ways. But what if fear was a necessary ingredient for success? What if fear was an important ingredient in order to live life successfully? What if my fear of not enjoying a good meal was greater than my fear of speaking up? What if my desire to have a great meal 
enabled me to face my fears of speaking up. Now, this is not simply about how to manage your fears, and it's not simply about how to face your fears. And although it is true, we must expose our fears through the Word of God. We must expose these things that are ungodly fears, that are keeping us from moving forward, that are causing us to hide. By faith in the Word of God, we can learn that there is a godly fear there is a godly fear that's a necessary ingredient to living life successfully before a holy God. There is a godly fear that actually pushes us forward, closer to our Heavenly Father, so that we might know Him more intimately. We might know Him and make Him known in a way we could have never imagined. So in today's passage, I want us to look at three things. One, that there's a unified purpose for all of the scriptures, including the book of Proverbs. There are three kinds of people, and there are two kinds of fear. So first we'll look at this unified purpose, and then we'll, we'll move to the three kinds of people and the two kinds of fear. Looking in Proverbs 1 verses 2 through 4, we'll take a closer look at what is this unified purpose for the scriptures. But first, I wanna give you a little bit of background on the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is classified with the, the poetic books, the books of poetry in the scriptures. Um, in your English Bibles, it's placed right in the center uh, with Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Uh, but this is not the whole of all poetry in the scriptures, we find it in a number of places, Old and New Testament. Commentators will show us how Proverbs is broken down into two sections. Uh, I think the, the Proverbs that are most familiar to us, if you turn to the second half, or the second two-thirds of the book, Proverbs 10 through Proverbs 31, those chapters are primarily focused on what we would call the the singular pithy sayings, the memorable ways of, of encapsulating wisdom and truth and knowledge. And there's something as simple as Proverbs 10, verse 1. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Now, right there in that one verse, you have wisdom encapsulated. And as both a father and a son, I've experienced both sides of that equation as I'm sure as a child and an adult, um, you have as well. Those are the Proverbs that we're, we're seemingly most familiar with, but the first nine chapters primarily are actually longer discourses that, that give us uh, the context for Proverbs. And it begins with this prologue, verses one through seven of chapter one, and chapter nine gives us a contrast between Wisdom and folly, wisdom and folly. So the wisdom literature is commonly understood as, as practical insight, practical wisdom, case studies, uh, practical theology. It's a way of understanding life and even preparing for the difficulties of life so that we are better able to meet all of the things that we experience. But it's more important to see the larger context of, of Proverbs as well as all scripture because all wisdom comes from God 
in relationship to God. All, all scripture, all wisdom comes from God and in his relationship to God. The New Testament book of James tells us this, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. Think about that, every good and perfect gift, there is nothing that is not included in that statement. Every good and perfect gift, and that includes all wisdom, all godly wisdom. It's important that we do not disconnect the every good and perfect gift from the giver of that gift, the all-wise God. So it's important as we continue through this study to remember the connection. The all-wise God gives that wisdom that is necessary for all things, for life itself. Psalm 1 puts it this way. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And the contrast, of course, to the blessed one is the wicked. Not so the wicked. We see that contrast. So let's look more closely in Proverbs 1, verses 2 through 4. And what we see is the, the application, the, the purpose of Proverbs and its application. Notice in those three verses, two, three, and four, you see four infinitives. You see to know, to receive, to give. You see, even in verse six, to understand. So you see purposes for the Proverbs. What, what will they do? How will they help? To know wisdom and instruction. And we think of know as not simply an academic knowing, an accumulation of knowledge, but we think of it in the Hebrew sense of, of a more intimate and personal understanding of these things, and not just understanding, but also obeying, responding in obedience to what the Lord has commanded. Verse four, we see another purpose of the Proverbs, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. So we actually see a, a parallelism there. Prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Now at first glance, you could, you could say, well, the simple, the youth, we're talking about young people, but it's not necessarily limited to age. It's not strictly limited to age. It's speaking of maturity. It's speaking of a category which is not necessarily age specific, but someone who's lacking knowledge, lacking experience and needs that knowledge and needs that guidance, that wisdom to grow. Because the person lacks experience and maturity, they need instruction to act carefully and to avoid mistakes, to avoid doing evil. The book is written to help you and I to avoid problems and to anticipate them before we actually end up embroiled in them. It's to gain insight and understanding. And when you think about it, in a, in a sense, who is fully formed that does not need more wisdom? None of us can stand and say, well, I've got enough wisdom. I'm going to just let somebody else take care of that. All of us, in a certain sense, want to be teachable. We need to be in a situation where we, we grow. And that's where the, wor the Word of God helps us. And to, to illustrate that, think of yourself as a student and think of the world as a classroom. Now, what are the dangers that you see 
in the classroom that is called the world. Well, if you used popular sources just to understand life, you could end up in grave, grave danger. Without the Word of God, you are really going to be left to your own devices to figure out how the world works. Think about this, verse 3, one of the purposes of the Proverbs, as well as the Word of God, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Now, I dare say those words, righteousness, justice, and equity, are actively and continually being redefined by the culture in which we live. You can only understand those things truly through the Word of God and through the clarity that the Word of God gives. Some would say the Respect for Marriage Act is a situation of equity. It's merely a situation of acknowledging that certain groupings of people want to be joined together and by law that whoever wants to can receive that privilege. But in order to respect something, you must first know the thing. And how could you know what marriage is apart from the Word of God? A man and a woman joined together before the eyes of God for the purpose of procreation. So the scriptures are absolutely clear, and neither a government, nor a law, nor a church, nor a person can change the revealed truth of the Word of God, whether it be in general or special revelation. Governments do not define marriage any more than a church can define the Word of God. We receive the Word of God we respect it for what it is, and we respond and proclaim it as it is. So in the same way, we are in grave need of having clarity on these issues. The law is a teacher, but what if the teacher is lying? How will the students know what is true? Now keep in mind, this is the truth of God's word. It doesn't give us permission to be callous or to be hurtful in how we deliver this truth. Jesus Christ came in the fullness of grace and truth, in the fullness of grace and truth. And we proclaim the truth of the Word of God in the fullness of how Christ has made it known. So we, we recognize, first and foremost, as Christians, we absolutely depend and need the grace of God in every area of our lives. And so we proclaim it and with fear and trepidation, but we proclaim it clearly. Another example might be the personal interest stories that just abound uh, in social media, uh, the TV, reality shows, in so many ways. There are so many ways of sharing this sentimental view uh, of which we have a person who lacks something. This person may be lacking an opportunity, may be lacking resources, and there is a type of savior that appears and steps into their lives and then and, and gives them a temporal salvation, so to speak. Um, it may be free tickets to a ball game. It may be uh, another way uh, of improving their, their temporal lives, such as remodeling their house, some sort of wonderful event that makes you feel real good. It's a very sentimental story, but it distracts you from the truth and the realities of eternity. As we simply feel good about this person being helped, 
rather than see the greater need for their soul. Now, I say that in the context of the Thanksgiving ministry, as Pastor Sean shared with you, 630 meals prepared and shared with people around the community, and that was a wonderful thing. But if it only stopped there and feeding their stomachs, we would have missed the greater opportunity to say that we are doing this in the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are doing this for a greater purpose, and it gives us a means to share not only a way to solve a temporal need, but also an eternal one, which is all the greater. So think about all of the sources of advice that you consult on a daily basis. And it used to be just paper and newspapers, and, but it has just proliferated. And those of you that are good on your smartphones, you've got a daily steady diet of information that's telling you and counseling you how to live. You're collecting opinions, you're collecting instruction, and you're receiving advice on how to live. But how do you know what's true? How do you know how to live? You see, anybody can benefit from the temporal, in a temporal way from the wisdom of Proverbs, but there's a greater overarching purpose from the Proverbs and the Word of God that we see and you see it in your, in your outline, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. You see, the one purpose of all scripture is to make you wise for salvation. It is to introduce you to the living God that through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, you can know this God. You can call him your heavenly father and you could live with eternity in view at this very moment and to enjoy that fellowship and that communion. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14 through 17, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy this, but as for you, he says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. So there's an expectation of progress. It's not, well, I receive this information and I'm done. I walk the aisle at a certain time and I'm done. No, continue, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures. At that time, the Old Testament and then the New Testament books that were being accumulated and then eventually which would be the scriptures that we hold today. Because these sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture, the Proverbs, as well as all scripture, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man, the woman, the child of God may be complete, may be perfected, may be mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Does this passage describe you? Are you experiencing this on a regular basis? If not, I have good news for you. Turn to the Lord himself. Turn to the, the Savior of the Lord, Jesus Christ, who has lived and died and rose again for your sins so that you might know this God. You might come to him humbly and yet full of expectation that he will supply your every need. So the overarching 
purpose of the scriptures, the overarching purpose to make you wise for salvation, leads us to seeing some examples in the lives of three people. You see that Proverbs 1 verse 1 begins with the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And right there you see two of the three people that we'll look at. But we're also going to look at categories of people as well. The Proverbs of Solomon tells us that these are Solomon's Proverbs. Are every single one of them written by Solomon? Well, we see other contributors. We see in chapter 30, Augur. We see in chapter 31, King Lemuel. So we see an expansiveness, but we know from 1 Kings chapter 4 that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding that was beyond measure. He was exemplary as far as human wisdom is concerned. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and then also of Egypt, and that he spoke over 3,000 proverbs. So think of the proverbs as the collection of the apex of wisdom. It is, it is the collected apex of wisdom. And the three people that we see, I first want to give us two categories to understand those three people. Two simple categories. Because it, it, it's important to recognize the broader context that God makes binary distinctions. Um, binary, binary number system is zero, one. It's and or. It's, two, it's simply two choices. God himself makes binary distinctions in the physical creation as well as the spiritual. And the physical we see as soon as we open up the book of Genesis. We see light and darkness. We see water and land. We see male and female. Those binary distinctions are there, but they're also true in the spiritual realm as well. We see blessing and curse. We see good and evil. We see the wise and the fool. Now consider these binary distinctions in the lives of three people, three categories of people, the wise and the fool, but what's in between? We're going to say that the simple is in between, and we're going to use it as a synonym for the teachable. Now, the simple are at risk of being led astray, and if you are grown and mature and you're simply proceeding to, and continuing in simplicity, you could absolutely be led astray. But let, looking at it in the sense of needing to be teachable, because wise and fool are not static in the sense of, I've achieved wisdom, and so I'm going to be a wise person for the rest of my life. Or I'm a fool, and I guess there's no hope for me. I can't get out of it. No, these categories can change even within the same day. Have you done anything wise and foolish in the same day? I imagine you have, because I have too. Not hard to imagine. So think of it in these terms. See, the wise, verse 5, the wise are commended to increase in learning. It's never simply a static position. And then alternately, the fool despises wisdom and instruction. You might say, well, I don't despise it, but how often do you seek it? How often do you look for it? How often do you ponder it? To simply ignore it is a type of despising it. 
and hating it. So now to the, to the examples of the three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. What's helpful to consider in the lives of Saul, David, and Solomon is to consider their heart in relationship to wisdom. See, as I said, to disconnect wisdom from a spiritual reality is to put ourselves in grave danger. We don't simply want to pursue wisdom for its own sake. We pursue wisdom in relationship to the living God. King Saul, we know, had no heart for God. But David and Solomon were different. Now, you would expect Solomon, being the son of David, would have far exceeded David. And there's a sense in which he had, but it's not complete. See, King Solomon was known for his wisdom. And we looked at that. We looked at how he was exemplary for his wisdom. But what happened to King Solomon? 1 Kings 11.4 gives us the warning. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And while King David may be known for his sin with Bathsheba, it is said that he had a whole heart. When he was rebuked, when he was corrected, he turned back to the Lord instead of turning away from the Lord. King David indeed was a man after God's own heart, although imperfect in that regard because he was merely a sinful man. As I said, these categories, wise and foolish, are dynamic. They're not static. In other words, past performance is not a guarantee of future results. So you can't simply rest on the fact that, well, I know some things, or I've demonstrated some wisdom, or I've done something that's noteworthy. Because the wise person today can easily become the fool tomorrow. David himself, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we learn of David commanding his, his military leader, Joab, to count up the military strength of Israel. Joab tried to reason with David. He said, David, this is not the right thing to do. This is contrary to what God has told you to do, which is to trust in the Lord for strength rather than trusting your military strength. Well, David prevailed. David's action was found to be foolish, and David humbled himself. He recognized that he had sinned greatly by doing this thing. And the prophet Gad gives David three choices. David, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be discipline. Here are the three options you have to choose from. David was told in 1 Chronicles 21, 13, or I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles verse, uh, he was told he could have three consequences to choose from. Three years of famine, three months of devastation at the hands of his enemies, or three days of the sword of the Lord. So three months, three years, three months, or three days. Now, you might think, what could the sword of the Lord be, right? Wouldn't it be better to experience famine or devastation 
what on earth could it be that the Lord, the very Lord God himself carrying a sword, what could that be? That sounds like to me the most fearful thing to face, even if the others are, are much longer. But David's response was very telling. David in 1 Chronicles 21, 13 says, I am in great distress. So this is weighing on him heavily. I'm in great distress. His choice though, let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. You see, David's fear of the Lord actually moved him closer to the Lord, moved him closer to the only one to which he could entrust his soul. There's a connection between the heart of a person and wisdom. In Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, emphasize that. It says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness, for I delight in these things. The Lord Jesus himself said, the queen of the south sought out Solomon, came to hear of his wisdom. But Jesus said, something greater than Solomon is here. And that is the Lord Jesus himself. Something greater than Solomon is here. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one through whom you can find forgiveness of sins, the only one through whom you have a free access and a relationship with the living God. So we humble ourselves before Almighty God so that he might lift us up. And so as we've seen, the very purpose of the scriptures, the very purpose of Proverbs is to make us wise for salvation. And we've seen examples of those who have exhibited wisdom and folly. But then lastly, I want to look at two kinds of fear. Two kinds of fear. Fear is not acquired by an evolutionary process. It is God's gift through common grace to all mankind. Uh, fear is good when it enables us to run away from something that's dangerous. But fear can also keep us keep us from living a productive life, keep us from knowing the living God. Jesus himself gave us two kinds of fear. He contrasted the two kinds of fear in Matthew 10, verse 28. He said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So you see those two fears contrasted. There is a fear of man, a man that can kill your very body. But Jesus said there's a greater fear. There's the necessary fear to fear the one who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. Imagine I'm running from a barking dog and I'm running with all my might. And that was another fear I had as a child was of dogs because I had some bad experiences. And people say, why didn't you like dogs? I said, it's not that I didn't like dogs. Dogs didn't like me. That's what I didn't like about dogs. So I'm running from this barking dog and then I meet a raging gorilla. So all of a sudden I've got a much greater fear to run from. But these are fears that just 
make me run in one direction or another direction. I'm simply running away from the problem. I'm not running toward anything else. There's another kind of fear, a similar kind of fear, that motivates me to want to show you the good things I do and hide from you the things that are bad. That's, another, that's a fear of people. It's, it's a desire to want to please other people. These are fears that fundamentally cause us to turn away and cause us to hide. But there is a fear of the Lord. There is a fear that's motivated by love. You see, the, the ungodly fear is motivated by hate. I want to avoid consequences or I want to somehow get approval and get the spotlight on me. But there's a greater, there's a better fear that's motivated by love. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1-7, is the beginning of knowledge. It's a respect, it's an awe, it's an honor to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord because He has saved you. He has rescued you from the greatest predicament you will ever, ever experience. And Romans 8, verse 15, as I finish, gives us the contrast again, these two types of fear. Romans 8, 15 tells us this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, an ungodly fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. This is an, a godly fear that wants to honor, wants to praise, wants to live a life pleasing to God in every way. And that includes living in obedience to his commands, but also confessing my sins and being willing to humble myself in his sight. This is the fear that is spoken of in Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Please pray with me. Our God and Father, Lord, we thank you for your kindness towards us, Lord. You have revealed your truth, the truth of your word to us in the scriptures. Lord, we hold your word. Father, we confess that we are distracted by so many things. And yet, Lord, only a few things are important, really only one, and that is to seek you, Lord, to seek in the scriptures how you have revealed the Lord Jesus Christ. You have revealed him as the only solution to mankind's problems, but also the only means by which we can know you and draw near to you. So we thank you for this truth. I pray, Lord, illuminate your word. Make it clear. Make it clear 